Hello, you have stumbled onto another episode of Get Your Fill, Financial Independence and Long Life, where we strive for ways and search for ways to achieve those two goals. But tonight's conversation has nothing really directly to do with financial independence or long life, but it has to do with something that's really been bothering me, and I think has been bothering a lot of us, and that is this racism that's been rearing its ugly head in America lately. Not that lately, but it seems to be getting to a kind of a trigger point. And so I invited some people who are thought leaders and influencers in the black community to come and try to help to educate me on what it means to be black in America right now. And hopefully you will also take something away from it. Anyway, enjoy what is going to be several episodes because our conversation, our half-hour conversation, ended up going on for almost three hours. And I enjoyed every second of them. Hopefully you will too. Okay, so I guess I'll just be alphabetical. I tried to get some folks who have a little bit different background and maybe have a little bit different perspective um, just to keep things interesting. So um, Sarah, you know, I invited you because Sarah was um, adopted and raised by white parents. So, and has kind of, you you have a, do you have one black sister and one white sister? Is that right? I have actually eight, uh, seven siblings. What? And (laughs) uh, two are step siblings who are uh, Italian American white. Uh, people. And I have a brother who is half Irish and half Polynesian, a brother who is half Italian and half African American, a sister who is um, African American, a sister who is Cape Verdean. And um, my parents had a biological child who is um, a a white, lovely young girl. (laughs) Wow. The baby of the family. (laughs) So we have, we have a a beautiful, um, a beautiful family with just a lot of different uh, nationalities and ethnicities that we are able to draw from. And uh, so of our six, five of us were adopted. And then um, years later, uh, after uh, my father died, my mother remarried a gentleman who had two children of his own. So now there's eight of us. Oh, amazing. (laughs) Okay. Wild house. Yeah. And I wanted Lucky to join us because he's not, he wasn't born in the U.S. I was, so technically, on a technicality, I was born here, but I moved away really young and I was raised in the Caribbean. So I, I didn't move to the um, America until I was 18. So I was raised wow. in the Caribbean islands. Um, but my parents and my parents are both Caribbean. So they intentionally made sure we were born here. To, so that we would be citizens and then raise us in the Caribbean so that we didn't have to. Um, we are from Jamaica, Queens, New York. So as you know, that's like one of the hubs right now of where this is going down. And then my parents kind of had the foresight to make sure that we didn't have to go through what we're currently protesting about. So Kimley, you are, I consider you to be a, like a thought leader and a, just a vocal, um, very well read. I respect you. I think a lot of you and... Right now, Kimley is the president of NABWIC, the National Association of Black Women in Construction, 
so anyway, Kimley, you take over and you explain about yourself and your perspective. Well, again, thank you for having me this evening, Chris. Sarah, I'm from a family of 10. And that was the same wow. mom and dad. We don't have any diversity. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a large family. I love our large family. It's fun. And, uh, this whole uh, quarantine has um, made me miss them more. We get together the first Sunday of every month. So oh. I am here at my sister's home. She's celebrating her 60th birthday. So if you hear a little jazz playing in the background or a little laughter that's coming yeah. through the window, I did mm-hmm. come inside away from the crowd. But um, mm. I, I think this amazing uh, time in which we live where we're being forced to recognize um, our true identity and, and, and that there is a human race. And um, since we're all on lockdown and we all witnessed a murder, uh, and the atrocity yeah. of all that just seen it happen. I think it's just made us all be present with ourselves a little more than we typically would be. We're not distracted. So we're forced to have this conversation. You know, a lot of people say, well, it just seems untimely right after quarantine. I said, no, it's very timely because when we leave this quarantine, we cannot go out into the world in the same craziness we've done for the last hundreds of years. So um, our timing is not God's timing, but this is perfect timing for some introspection and to say, where do we go from here and how do we really honor uh, the diversity that we are? I mean, we have different species of flowers and different species of animals and trees. Mm-hmm. Only the human species that has diversity amongst itself gets crazy. <laughs> so we got to fix that. We, get the, we have the honor and privilege to fix that. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm honored to be a part of the conversation today. Oh, I'm, I'm very grateful that you're here. Thank you, Kimley. So I tried to have a, a mixture of like ages and, you know, just like backgrounds and stuff like that. And so Ioni's in, from the younger contingent. And, you know, Ioni, this, tell me if I'm wrong about this, but the, one of the ways I think about you is that you invite people to underestimate you. Would you yes. say that's true? Very much so. <laughs> very much so. So I thought that perhaps that experience of being underestimated would give you the perspective that, um, some perspective to bring to this conversation. Would you uh, introduce yourself for anyone that didn't hear your podcast episode? (laughs) Sure. Hello, everybody. My name is Ioni. I like to just say Ioni, like a one-named artist. But uh, (laughs) I have... uh, Two African-American parents. Um, I wrote a paper actually about them when I went to Howard. If I had to describe them, I would say that my father is a lot like uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and my mother is a lot like Booker T. So that kind of tells you the environment that I was raised. I do have a, uh, an older sister who was 12 years older than me, which also means that I was treated like a, an only child which would also tell you a lot about me. And, but I'm also a baby, which would also tell you a lot about me. So you're in luck, Lucky because I, um, I said, oh my God, Lucky's the only man on the panel. <laughs> so Wyman is going to join us and he'll, he'll give you a little support. Perfect timing, Wyman. Oh man, we just got finished introducing ourselves. We were just sort of saying our backgrounds. The, the main reason that I invited you to be on the panel is because 
you're a male because and i and i didn't want lucky to feel completely overwhelmed with women <laughs> and because you have the right energy you know a calm energy but also very um open and honest and i, I don't i hope we're not going to pull any punches here um yes well i'm in, i'm in jacksonville florida just up uh 95 from Ioni there. Um, she's a little bit further south in Florida than I am. I've been here for 30 years, uh, compliments of the Navy. Um, I spent eight years active duty and 22 years as a reservist. Um, I retired uh, with 30 years in 2012. But when I left active duty, I joined IBM and I'm in my 31st year at IBM. Wow. I'm in my... Uh, 24th year as a uh, lay minister. I'm the pastor of men at our church at uh, the Bethel Baptist Church in Jacksonville with Bishop McKissick uh, Jr. as the uh, senior pastor. So I've been uh, leading our men's ministry there. And I'm a uh, speaker. I do a lot of work with the Department of Defense, Yellow Ribbon, uh, working with our pre and post deployment guard and reserve. And um, 31st year of marriage. Rosemary and I have been married 31 years now. We have three kids, all of them out of college. <laughs> yes, that is a good thing. Um, but for those who haven't gotten there yet, there's a difference between out of college and out of your pocket. That I'm just <laughs> make that distinction clear. <laughs> thank you, Wyman. Yes, thank you. Yes. So I guess we'll start off with the easy questions first. Why do you think? there is this tendency toward racism and it's not just racism. You know, I mean, I've, I've done, you know, a lot of like, for example, when the Corona first hit, it was, there was a lot of violence against Asians. Like they personally brought the coronavirus over, you know, there was just, there's sort of like, it seems like it, it's maybe for some folks, their first re reaction is like, Oh, it's their fault. Let's go get them. You know? Um, why do you think we're like this? And anybody can, you know, I just, I want to, what I want to happen is that I'll step away from this conversation and it's going to take on a life of its own. So please just, uh, I'll stop it if it gets like out of control, you know, and everybody's talking on each other, but please feel free to just, you know. I do want to make the first comment. Okay. Um, I'm going to invoke an ancestor in this question. And um, Dr. Francis Cresswellsen did say, if you don't understand racism, white supremacy, everything else will just confuse you. So anybody else can pick up that panel. Um, somebody's probably gonna go back to the start of America, but I did just wanna invoke uh, an ancestor to answer that question. Uh, this is Kimberly, I'll, I'll, I'll chime in on that. and. Um, that was very fundamental. Like she said, if you don't understand the basics of, of those two key factors, then this is a mute conversation. And um, in addition to that, we have to be willing to accept the fact that uh, there's some deprogramming required. We have been conditioned behaviorally and we don't like to face the fact because we like to believe we're you know, self-actualized thinkers. And, but we're not. We're, we're just like... Uh, you know, sheep being laid, led astray to the slaughter in many cases, and we just go along with protocol. And I think uh, what's going to change us in our behaviors when we get honest to say we need to rethink how we think, 
and embrace the fact that uh, we've been conditioned. We've been conditioned erroneously by those two factors that white supremacy forces us to have a, a, a sense of dominance um, and competitiveness versus collaboration. And so as soon as we have opportunity to, I use the phrase, throw somebody under the bus, like you said, when the Asians <clears throat> and being responsible, anything that we can put externally and blame someone for, we tend to do that. And I think that just keeps us from that sense of accountability that, you know, my thinking is screwed up. We're psychotic. And um, until we embrace that uh, psychotic behavior, we're, we'll continue. Do you think that psychosis is a, it's a white psychosis or do you think that we all have that? There is definitely a white psychosis. tendency or desire to blame someone else. Yeah, I, I think it comes from, uh, I'll use the phrase white supremacist culture, that white dominance culture. And, um, but as a result of it, you cannot hold somebody hostage for 400 years and there's some level of uh, psychosis that begin for those who are oppressed. So we, we have some work to get through. To I mean, I look at it from the standpoint of an abused wife. She was, he said, he, congratulations to my brother who's been married 31 years. But if you had 31 years of an abused marriage and your husband dropped dead with a massive heart attack, you're going to be just as ignorant as you were before you died going to be just as clueless, just as fearful, just as not knowing anything to do because your whole existence has been inside of that oppression. So therefore, as uh, you say, did it start with whites? Yeah, it started with the behavior that that's a psychotic person who wants to do what we saw or what we see, but it does have an impact on the mindset of those who are oppressed. So I could say it's a lot of introspection that has to happen and to go very deep to the conditioning and how we change our own frame of reference for ourselves individually before we can ever help those outside of us. That's my understanding. Okay, Any, can we I'll, hear I'll from- I'll jump in is- um, Thanks, Wyman. You mentioned the, the, the marriage. I use a marriage analogy as well to explain to uh, folks. And I said, it's, it's an abusive um, relationship. If you're in an abusive marriage and your spouse was beating you down, black and blue, every year, not for 31 years, but for 450 years. Okay. Um, but because, you know, a lot of times folks in abusive relationships, they still say that they love their spouse and they won't leave, even though they have the opportunity to. And for some reason, even after all the years of abuse, they still look to them hoping that they will return the love that they've given them only to be rebuffed again and again and again. The difference, though, is in a, uh, a, 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 an abusive relationship, you can file for divorce. Black America ain't going anywhere. Okay? So therein lies the challenge. Somebody's got to change. You know, instead of saying, hey, can you forgive them? You know, I heard somebody say today, says, yeah, but can you stop doing the things that require you to be forgiven over 400 years? Right? So that's, that's the question that we hate to uh, embrace. And a lot of folks, just the discussion about race makes some people uncomfortable. I was sharing with the brother the other day, the third stanza of the Star Spangled Banner. He didn't know it existed. Much of America doesn't know it existed. So when you talk about this country was founded in Christian beliefs, the third verse, of the Star Spangled Banner begs to differ. 
the fact that we're treated less than equal, two thirds of a man uh, from a voting is not what God says when he says he's no respect of persons, right? So throughout there's been this contradiction and the things that contradict the rhetoric that we hear is not in the history books, right? And it's not being taught. And I think it's not laughable, but it's sad that I, uh, that the two places President Trump decided to have his coming out party with regards to post-COVID, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma on June the 19th, and then in Jacksonville, Florida for the convention, you can't find too many places in America where atrocities have not occurred against Black Americans. And that was like <laughs> exhibit A, right? You know, and, and uh, either he was ignorant of it or the fact that he knew about it in advance or at least had somebody on his staff that could have told him. Somebody. Mm-hmm. Indicates that he's saying who, whose president he is. That's a statement that's being made when you want to hold a rally on Juneteenth and then hold your convention acceptance speech on the anniversary of Axe Handle Sunday, a Saturday in Jacksonville, Florida, which was the, one of the bloodiest uh, occurrences in the state of Florida during the Civil Rights Act. So an abusive relationship, the abuser doesn't care if it hurts your feelings. Exactly. And what's worse, when you dare to ask for equal treatment, they make you feel like you're out of line and you should be happy you're in a marriage. You should be happy you're in the United States. If you don't like it, leave. That's the rhetoric you get, right? And uh, I could see, like you're saying, after 31 years, if you leave, you're just as ignorant as you were before. Well, we're not ignorant, <laughs> right? Right? Like the kids say, you know, we are woke. We know what time it is and we know what's going on. And I believe, you know, this is an opportunity for uh, for some substantive change if we get out to vote. Yeah. And I just want to add about the statement of ignorance, what I meant when you're, uh, I should say you're unsealed and unexposed yes. if you've been sheltered away. So yes. now you have this new world of discovery and, um, and we're not going to allow anyone to impede our pathway of discovery. Um, we're, as we're learning and improving and understanding even better systems. I always say, let's not forget, African-Americans have been vital to the human experience because they are the only culture that has raised other awareness of how humans should be treated. We have raised the consciousness of humanity for years. Yes. Like we talk about slavery in America based on Christian principles, and they all missed the book of Exodus, the whole history and the story of slavery for years, and they all missed that. And for hundreds of years, preached from the Bible and enslaved. So we have to understand, like I said, there's some rhetoric, there's some conditioning, and this goes way back, even before coming, you know, to America. It was the value that they didn't want to accept on a culture. And now because they imposed these inflictions and got away with it so many years, it's just killing them that they have to embrace. It was us who decided that this was a culture inferior to us. And then any other way, everyone has their areas of superiority. Yes. And I often remind people as black people, go back to when they were going across the Atlantic Ocean to get us. There was no GPS system. There was no forecast of a hurricane coming. They risked that ocean. And nobody would risk the ocean and that for savages, as we were made to see in the media for many years. 
but they knew there was value. And if they could get that right. people to this land, not just that they could work in this land, what these people could create in this land. Mm. And so I often challenge President Trump, when you say make America great again, which era are you speaking? When black folks made it a great country or when you was disillusioned to think white folks did it? Because this has been America, this has been black folks making this happen. And that's why I encourage blacks today. Hey, look, you've been making this happen a long time. Our ancestors have been made has been making this happen a long time. Now let's step into what's rightfully ourself, our sense of self. Like I say, well, we are away. Mm-hmm. And um and, and apologies to those who refuse to awaken. No matter what your race is, we all going to wake up this time. 2020 is a year of clarity. Vision 2020, when we correct our lens, we see vision 2020. This is not going to be the same. It's impossible to ever be the same again. So get ready for a new world we get to create. I want to talk about the analogy um, that we use a lot, um, which is the battered spouse syndrome, right? Um, and we compare that a lot to how African-Americans or Black people are treated in this country. And I see the similarities, but what I don't see in that is the difference is, like, if if a wife is being beaten by her husband and she does not want help, you can't force her to testify against her, right? I see a similarity there. Like, we don't want to, if black people don't want to help themselves, you can't force them to help themselves. I see that similarity. I see the syndrome similarity. What I see different, though, is if the person being abused does want help, there are systems in place to get them that help, right? Beyond just filing for divorce. There's actually shelters for them. There's um, work, there's like organizations dedicated to providing the aid for transitioning them out and helping them go. Whereas as black people in America, we don't have those systems, right? Those systems don't exist. There is no third party that says, if you are black in America, you've been mistreated, come to me, let me help you. Like go, that doesn't exist. So when we when we make that analogy, because that doesn't exist, it, it kind of seems hopeless, right? And I almost challenge us like what other, analogy if we need one what other analogy can we use because that one doesn't have the same exit path to success as as black people we don't have that option which that bad syndrome wife or person does have in that case and, and that is so true um we don't have that support system at all and that's the uncomfortable conversation that white americans don't like to have that's why they don't want to talk about racism because they have a responsibility to put those systems in place and there are some governmental requirements to put those systems in place. No one has wanted to put those systems in place, but they say, Dr. King says it's best. You say, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, but we don't have on a pair of boots. Right. I can't pull myself up with my bootstraps because I don't have any boots. And everything about the economic base, which is why slavery existed, we were denied ownership of land. How can I pull myself up if I can't even own land or farm? And then he put us in the whole sharecropper thing. Mm-hmm. So we were always behind the eight ball. Yeah. Malcolm X said oh, around the same time, though, the nation of Islam. But like, I'm, I don't. Um, just because you brought up King, I want to bring up X at the same time, right? Like, I don't. I, but I'm mm-hmm. agnostic of religion. Like, I don't have a certain religion, so I'm not pitching or anything. But I'm saying, mm-hmm. at the same time, if we, we don't have boots on, X gave us a plan that said, if you were, if we were religious under the nation of Islam, for example, right now we actually have a religion that we can stand on, like as a pair of boots. Or if we, or if we look at a Marcus Garvey's plan and say we're going pan-African, right? Now we have a pair of boots. Like we haven't, I agree with you. We haven't put on a pair of boots, whether it's a religious group that we all affiliate with, because we've all been stripped of the culture, right? America, period, has been stripped of their culture. Not just Black Americans, even White Americans have been stripped of their culture. Yeah. Because if you really think about it, white is just something that they use to blend over Swedish, Italian, like German, French. All of that is like swept under this one thing of white. 
right? And then all the different African nations and Caribbean nations we come from is also from the black. So we all, mm-hmm. neither one of us has it, but white America has taken America for them. Like they've made that their pair of boots and we haven't made it our pair of boots. So like, I almost feel like as black people, we have to choose. Are we going to say America is ours just as much as it is yours? So give me them damn boots. Or are we going to say, we're going to somehow affiliate with like Ghana who's saying African-Americans come home, we will support you. Because at the end of the day, if one, if I woke up tomorrow and said, you know what, I'm going to affiliate with Ghana, right? And they're giving citizenship to us. And then I get mistreated here in the U.S. God, now you have an international affair if a, if a Ghanaian citizen is mistreated here in the U.S. But when a black mm-hmm. American is mistreated here, there is no repercussion. There is no one to hold the U.S. accountable for mistreating us because we don't even have human rights. We only have civil rights to this point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think that's a powerful point. That's why I said um, there's we've been at this now 50 years, just a little over 50 years. And thanks to uh, the Nation of Islam, I follow Farrakhan. I'm not a devout worshiper of his faith or whatever, but I look for economic base. America is based on about economics, and I think we have opportunities now. No, no one's going to throw in the towel for us to do it. We're doing it ourselves, and I think the encouragement now is more of us having to step out of our comfort zone and have these tough conversations. I could go to Africa. Like you say, we could. But I'm like these other folks. You're not going back to Germany. You're not going back to Switzerland. You're not going back to those other areas for your economic empowerment or for your family. And I don't plan to do so either. And I believe we do have now have some opportunities that we have some boots now and we have some proven systems that show that we can make that economic shift. And I think that's what inspires me that now racism wants to really rear its head up because now black folks are owning their space. It's, it's Tulsa, Oklahoma again. When we start taking our space, it's like when a woman stands up, stand up to the man, she make it deep down more so, like get back in your place. And I think all this police brutality and now that more people are seeing, this is the treatment blacks have had, get back in your place. I tell people the punishment for black folks, I believe is poverty. Everything they do is to keep us in poverty. That's the punishment for having the audacity to say, you don't want to be in this abusive suppressive relationship with America. We want the same rights. We're not two thirds. That was your definition. So if I said I'm 100% American and black skin, you gotta recognize I'm 100% American and black skin. I want the exact same thing. And I'm demanding the same thing. And that's what I teach young people when I uh, mentor in the schools. Hey, there's no, you know, we're not gonna keep these systems in place. We have to start saying, now that we know, we can research, um, I think education, when then, like in our state, education is based on the real estate tax dollars. There's no way an affluent neighborhood can educate an impoverished neighborhood on the same scale. We're going to say that cannot be the basis for education. We're going to take this tax base and we're going to allocate it amongst the pupils in the schools of Michigan, and that's the kind of money you get. No more a student get five times as much money because of real estate. We know that doesn't work. Right. And we know that's set up to disadvantage people. It can't happen anymore. We're calling this stuff out. It's actively engaged, to me, in a system that you set up to disadvantage us. I'm calling it out. And say, now, this is what it's going to be. After all, you can't sit in that seat of power unless you're elected in. And you can be recalled. And so I think we've just not had enough encouragement to look at this political process. And it's too much stuff on the books that's disadvantaging us. It just can't exist anymore. That's my take on it. Racism is not about white and black. That's the top line. At the end of the day, 
is economics and who they think has a right to have a legacy wealth. Mm-hmm. That's my take. This is very interesting to me. Yeah. I see you nodding your head. (laughs) Well, the analogy of the uh, abused um, partner in in a relationship, it resonates with me because just growing up, I've always loved America and just felt so proud to be an American. And then as I became an adult and I became more aware of what really was America, it didn't diminish my my love for America. I'm still standing there like I'm an American. I'm proud of America. But recently in the last few years, I feel that the American flag, for example, is weaponized against me. This is not your flag. I feel like when I see uh, a flag waving on the street or on someone's truck or something, somehow it's been able to hurt me a little bit. And I think it is related to that sort of looking for my place in this. I I know that I am American. Like you said, I'm a black American. I'm in that skin. And yet somehow I'm not a whole American. I'm I'm being prevented from enjoying the American dream, the American promise, American exceptionalism. You know, the flag today, I was driving down the freeway over to my sister's and so there was this, uh, a Trump supporter. He had the American flag, and he had the flag to say, I support Trump. And so as you said, the, the flag has been, um, you know, pledge allegiance to the flag has changed. That flag, and now it's like it's representing something else. Something else. Almost to the point, like it's the freaking Confederate flag. I'm like, y'all got to get right. there with this flag system here. You know, I have rights. What we say we raise the flag for the land of the free, all of a sudden you will take offense when I'm demanding my freedom. And and I and using that flying flag as the same representation. So now it doesn't represent freedom for all of us. And when there's, you know, acknowledgement of the flag, make sure it has school, rain for everyone. Oh, you you're disavowing the flag. No. I'm saying I'm holding that flag accountable for what it's supposed to serve oh, in my yes. life, just like it's right. you. Yeah. If you got a problem with that, I'm gonna say I'm not gonna get on to you make this flag equal to represent all of us. Kimberly, I wanna ask you I wanna ask you and everyone here yeah. kind of a question, right? Because you I've heard you say mm-hmm. now like a couple of times you have you have rights. And when is the last time like honestly all of us have actually read the constitution and all of its amendments? Has anyone read it in the last year? I only read the 13 last night. <laughs> I'm not, I'm read not it okay. it entire- no, I read it in the last year. All right. The reason I bring the reason I bring that up, right? I I, re- I, gl- I glossed over it. Let's say, all right. Let's say it, it needs more reading. But if you read the 13th, the 15th, and the 18th Amendment, the 13th starts to give people of all colors and who are born in this country rights of a citizen, right? Mm. And then the fifth, but then the 15th comes along and gives people the right to vote who were born. And it's like, why would we need to get the right to vote if we already were given the rights of citizens in number 13? And that didn't happen for a year later. So that means mm-hmm. they gave us rights, but we still weren't allowed to vote because people were still stopping it. And then they had to give us the right to vote. And then it wasn't until the 18th, which was years later, that actually gave women the right to vote. So mm-hmm. it's like, we're, we're saying we have rights, but they didn't get on the books until later. And are they actually still even being followed? And as far as like, the one that abolished slavery, as we know, that technically didn't abolish slavery. It just changed the way slaves can be had, right? So 
when when we talk about yeah we have rights i'm an american i have rights we our rights are amendments they're not written into like the foundation of this country so an amendment is just put there after an amendment can be taken away interpreted yeah. changed and it's like i look at it and i'm like i don't really know how i'm not really sure how much rights we have i know like i said earlier we have civil rights but why do why would humans need civil rights why wouldn't humans just have human rights and because we're still considered three-fifths of a human not just by voting right we're still considered three-fifths because of the fact that they have to amend the document to take care of us and that is a very powerful point the rights that we say we're searching for have to be legislated for us but it wasn't legislated for other people mm -hmm. you know what why do we need to, why are you gonna legislate our rights you didn't legislate your rights right. so that's why i say you know fuck that i don't need you to legislate my rights my rights are the rights i'm pursuing and teach people to have as a human, you have rights as a human. If America didn't grant those to you, and that's the ugly conversation racists don't want to talk about because we're calling out this, uh, what is it, hypocrisy. You claim it's the land of the freedom, it never has been. And, I, and you need to address that. Not me. You need to address that as white people. You know, I told, you know, being a, a social, I'm the president of the Association of Black Women in Construction. And there was also an organization called the National Association of Women in Construction. So I was asked, well, why do you guys need association of black women in construction? We already have the National Association of Women in Construction. I said, because the last time I checked, white people didn't give a damn that black people didn't have the same liberty. In the same free world, you didn't make sure we had it. So we got to make sure we got our own rights. So we have the Black Association for Women in Construction. Now, if you take care of yours and you're not taking care of all of us, I'm gonna be in the same situation. So I don't have a problem with saying black chambers of commerce, black women in construction, I have to ensure that my black children that follow me know that they have rights that are not granted to them. They were born with them. You've been in the way of my inherent rights. And I think if we start looking at it from that standpoint, whites hold some accountability to how they claim to defend this flag. You know, how they claim to be doing all this other stuff in the name of the flag. But the name of the flag, like you say, required another 18 amendments. Yeah. I think when it comes to flags, I, I use the, uh, the Confederate flag, right? Um, you know, right here in Jacksonville, you know, monuments came down. It's kind of a, kind of funny, right? Mm -hmm. I'm gonna tell you the backstory behind that. <laughs> Jacksonville, as you know, is hosting a Republican convention, right? It, it was, somebody said it was a competition of one. Every other major city in Florida has a Democratic mayor. Jacksonville was the only one with a Republican mayor, right? Just set that aside for a second. The mayor has been pushing back on removing of Confederate monuments since he got in office. This is his second term, so he's in his sixth year. All of a sudden, on a Saturday night, he moves the monument. On Monday, he announces the RNC is coming to Jacksonville. Right? It's the old okie doke. You, you know, you know, you know. Like you said, stay woke. You can figure it out. You read the tea leaves. But I will tell you this: uh, he who has the most facts wins. That's why we got to know our history. That's why when Drew Brees was yeah. the greatest gift to us on the planet, when he said. I will never defend anyone kneeling for the national anthem. My grandfather fought in World War II, the greatest generation, yada, yada, yada. Fact. 
African-Americans have fought in every war that has occurred in the United States of America, including the Revolutionary War, where African-Americans took the first bullet for our freedom from um, uh, England. Christmas right? addicts. Right, we know that. World War II, we fought right alongside uh, Drew Brees' grandfather, great-grandfather. We won, uh, and by the way, as a footnote, America has a bad habit of getting selective amnesia. When they start dissing our brothers down in Puerto Rico, we need to remind them they were annexed specifically so we could use their men in our uniforms and fight for America in the World War. We invited them to the party. They didn't invite themselves to the party. So when we talk bad about them and uh, the 51st state and all this stuff, remember, America needed them. They didn't need us. They could have stayed in the Caribbean and stayed out of the conflict. They got them. But we forget about that. Getting back to World War II. When we came back, we weren't greeted with ticker tape parades. We had to ride in the back of the bus if we could get a ride at all. Our cities were still burned down. Rosewood right here in Florida burned to the ground, right? Government sanctions, Tulsa, government sanction, uh, um, uh, terrorism, domestic terrorism, in its purest form. And so Drew Brees' grandfather looks at the flag that greeted him as a hero, honored him as the greatest generation. I can understand why he would have such reverence. But my grandfather, your grandfathers, most of you, that American flag was still a symbol. Um, as the brother mentioned, Slavery ended, but it just reshifted. It's called the prison farm system. The PFARM system started immediately after the abolition of slavery because now folks who couldn't own property, couldn't get a job, couldn't get education, they would lock them up for vagrancy. And now they would lease them out back to the same plantations and steel mills in Birmingham and elsewhere, right? At, at, a, at a pennies on the dollar for what a real wage would cost. And that's how the, uh, the penal system, in that, that whole complex was created. The PFARM system was an extension of slavery. And that all was under the American flag. So when I, you, you put the facts out like that and you ask them, and I love uh, Malcolm X, right? I believe he was interviewed by Dan Rather. And uh, he asked the question, hey, uh, Malcolm X, do you hate white people? And he responded, if people raped your mothers and your daughters, took your property, hung you without a trial, would you hate them? Drop mic at that point. Yeah. And so when you ask them, if you came up on the flag where all of this was going on, right? And by the way, if white privilege wasn't real, why did you fight so hard to protect it? the human rights uh, legislation, which they call civil rights. Mm -hmm. The only reason it was there, they fought so hard to against it because that means that that privilege that was afforded them to drink in any water fountain they wanted, stay in any hotel they wanted, eat in any restaurant, that's privilege. And civil rights, equal rights, was taking that privilege away and they fought tooth and nail to protect it. Yes, they did. So, so why would you deny something that you fought so hard to afford us? Because right? you thought you were losing something of value, right? Mm -hmm. Again, everything I just said has facts and dates to go with it. 
right? And, and so if someone denies those, then they're a fool and you need to stop arguing with them because you're a bigger fool than they are yeah. <laughs> if you continue. Right? I mean, but it we need to know our history. <laughs> it and is our history. There's it's a lot of folks that don't know that history. It's almost like we need a, uh, just like they have apologetics uh, for religion, we need to have, we become very well versed in how to defend our positions with facts. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree with that. I, I was funny because I was just sharing with uh, Chris earlier today. I did a project with Ford Motor Company. Now we're in Detroit and Dearborn is a neighboring city. Ford Motor Company has never done anything in the city of Detroit in all these hundreds of years in the automotive industry. So I was spearheading a project and um, they were talking about doing mobility solutions with the Uber and the Lyfts entering the world. How do they make money? We were doing studies in all parts of the world, you know, Rio de Janeiro, parts of India I can't even pronounce, and, and, and everywhere, Japan, Europe. And I said, well, you know, people in Detroit can't even get to a job right now. Black folks in Detroit can't get to a job and you're right in your own backyard. Why don't we do a Detroit challenge study? And so they said, okay. And we started, uh, it was an initiative by the chairman, Bill Ford. So we got the green light started. We did all the research in the state. I'm a researcher by profession. And we're going about the process. So we had to do a tour through the city of Detroit. Now, the city of Detroit is, is horrible. It's come back in the last five years, yes, in our downtown, but the regional neighborhood and the, the business districts have been burned down since the 60s. And so we're taking this tour, and the people are asking, wow, all this happened from the recession in 2008? This is 2017. I said, no, dear. This was never rebuilt after the riots. Hmm. With the white migration that left and the money that went with them, it was never rebuilt. Now, it's strange today, all the whites are coming back to reclaim those neighborhoods, and we call that gentrification. But there's been nothing done since the white migration in the 60s, and here it is, 2016, 17, 18. Now their children and grandchildren want to come back, and we call it gentrification. Bettering these neighborhoods, they bring in a higher income, so they get total rights to what they do. Existing residents pretty much have no voice, which are predominantly for blacks, who, like we say, withstood all the city of Detroit when all the lights went out. Now they have no voice in all this white renovation, as they call it, and gentrification, and improving neighborhoods. I said it's all economics. But we don't want to have the conversation. They never knew that there was a white migration. In the 60s, they didn't want their kids in our schools. They left. They built new suburbs that didn't even exist. They went to farmlands and built subdivisions. Yeah. But no one wants to have that conversation. A lot of people don't know historically. So we're only talking in the last 55 years that we've been trying to get those civil liberties, those rights to drink out of the same fountains. It's only 55 years. Yeah. So now they want to come back and we call it gentrification. But it's still based on the same premise. That they have a better voice than your voice. Right. Same thing is happening in Atlanta already yeah. with different mutations. Same Baltimore, thing is happening in DC. And so and, you know, any major state. urban city. Major uh, urban cities were. Mm -hmm. I live right now in Roxbury in Boston, where I love during this quarantine, I've been taking walks. Beautiful homes, these beautiful old homes, a little rundown. But now 
every other one, you see them fixing it up. And I see now it's, it's being gentrified. These beautiful homes are now going to be subdivided into condos that are, you know, costing up to a million dollars in a place where, you know, a friend of mine bought a house for a hundred five thousand dollars eight years ago. Yeah. And it's yeah. just one part of a horrible change that I see in Boston that scares me. And I started seeing it a couple years ago, maybe five or six years ago, when my daughter was going from elementary school to high school. So she was leaving the neighborhood elementary school. And there was a huge call from the white parents to go back to neighborhood schools, which they were presenting as a way to make the schools better. But what I saw was a way to segregate, resegregate the schools. And it happened. And now Boston is talking about poor school performance again. And it's, it's disgusting. It's, it's confusing. I don't understand that. I shouldn't say I don't understand how they don't see what has happened because they did it. They did it on purpose. And the frustrating thing for me is not knowing how to stop it. So that, that, is, that becomes, you see this stuff so blatant in our face. I think it for us to be right almost there. like, is this really happening? It's almost like, what? Right. In 2020? Right. <laughs> That's how I feel. I'm like, seriously? Let me, let, let me go have a conversation with these people. Yes. So, like they used to call us, you people. Yes. You people. Sure they do. I say these people. These people. Let me have a conversation with these people. Because mm -hmm. these people are still confused. <laughs> here's a here's an angle that I think you talk about the psychosis of um, you know a racist. If you, you know in the in the game, um, anybody ever played Marco Polo when you're a kid? You know you kind of hold a person down at the bottom of the pool. You don't want to be too mean to them because sooner or later they're gonna get a breath a breath of air, and you don't want them to treat you the way they treated them, right? Um, you know for for those who are a staunch right wing is always, you know, holding up the Bible, you know, you can't ignore that verse that you're going to reap what you sow, right? Uh, you, you can't reverse it on it. You can't hope for crop failure. Right. They, they've been planting a whole lot of seed that they're not going to want to reap. And, and what is happening when you look at the browning of America, right? We're only, I, I think, maybe two, maybe three electoral cycles away from majority being minority they know the numbers right and so when people are cornered and people get desperate they do desperate things mm. so what you see is the, the I, I believe the manifestation of man if we don't do something now yeah okay and so that's why you get bolder right more brazen mm -hmm. right and it's still uh so Unlike, you know, going back to the marriage analogy, that's why I was said, unlike an abusive marriage, there's no filing for divorce here. Because because me and my, we're not going anywhere. This, this reminds me of uh, uh, Sophia when she came back in the color purple. Sophia, home now. Be changing around here. Sophia's <laughs> home now. <laughs> One little thing to that, brother. You said, you said um, earlier, someone said that we have unprogramming to do, right? And deprogramming to do. And one little thing, I just, I'm just questioning it, right? When you said we're a couple of electoral cycles away from the majority being the minority, right? 
why wouldn't that is another way of saying that the majority is flipping right instead of still calling us a minority as we become the majority because that in itself is keeping us to think that we are still less than right so i'm questioning like that's part of the language that we even use on a daily basis like even if we're 10 black even right now on this call right we would we would we may which we shouldn't but we may refer to ourselves as minorities but right now we're not we're the majority like Kristen's the minority here, yep. right? We 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 are the majority. So, like, being conscious of saying like that was intentional, calling us the minority to keep it that way. Because even if you go back to slave times, it was one slave owner and a bunch of slaves. We were never mm -hmm. actually the minority, right? We always Can were the majority. Right? That's they what I'm talking about. So, yeah. Conditioning, conditioning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, so it, I want to hear, I wanna hear from right? Ayani. Yeah. Is it Ayani? So I think you make a really good point. Um, I forgot who said it, but I, I did hear it from another ancestor. Um, it, uh, actually, my first quote is attributed to Dr. Francis Cress Wellesen's mentor, who is actually Dr. Um, Neely Fuller. But I do believe this quote comes from um, Dr. Francis Cress Wellesen's ISIS paper, which, which is, goes to your point. Uh, white people make up 10% of the world's population and how we came to name ourselves minority is that you take the majority population and then segment them. This one's black, this one's Hispanic, this one's Asian, this is other. And that's the only way that you can create a minority from the majority. Right. Um, it is mental programming. Um, so definitely going back to Kimley's very first statements. Um, I know that personally I've, I'm in um, and have been for years now in my own uh, deprogramming cycle. Um, so the other ancestor that I wanted to invoke, and, and the reason if you realize that I'm not saying anything new is because number one, I'm tired of talking. Um, there's nothing that I'm going to say that is going to be new. Um, and for anybody that's listening to this, I think it's more important to read and listen to the works of our forefathers who have written extensively about this. Um, Dr. John Henry Clark, Dr. Yosef Benyakin, Dr. Amos Wilson says, if you understand any problem in America, you need to focus on who profits from that problem, not who suffers from that problem. Uh, and I'll end by saying this. One of the most striking photos I've ever seen um, is when, I forget the name of the girl, but when you see the, the Black students walking into their high school. And in all of those iconic photos, what, what is very interesting to me is that the gaze is always on the black people and what the black people did or why they should be where they are. But what's really striking, if you, if you even pull up this photo, there is a white woman in the crowd vehemently yelling, screaming at this girl walking to her high school. And it's so striking to me because the white girl's mouth is like, I mean, wide agape, and um, uh, to not have the gaze on white people 
you know, it's like, don't, don't look at the one that's on the table. Look at, Kendi said it already, look at the psychosis of the doctor that's describing or prescribing the problem or diagnosing a problem. A lot of it doesn't even exist. It's all in their head. It's a, it's a, um, a faction of their imagination. Um, so I'm, I'm not invested in solving white people's problems. I even, I told my brother when all of this popped off and he works um, for a, a company in Silicon Valley and I have a friend um, who works at a library, which is generally a, a all white institution and um, the kind of anxiety that, that they had to face and going back into these spaces, knowing that their white coworkers which and white superiors, managers who didn't even acknowledge them before Mr. Floyd got killed are now turning to them, talking about what can I do? Are you okay? And what I advise my, my brother and what I want to say on this call is if you are white and you care that much to say something to a black person, don't say it. Turn around, address the um, um, public defense attorney or the prosecutor's office and make your, your care be known to your brothers and sisters, because um, I just finished Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon today, and it already already lays out what just happened in the book. Um, white people not listening to Black people. White people really only respect other white people. So if you really want to help us, go ahead, even without our permission, and talk to your own kind on our behalf, and you work it out on yourselves. Because it's not our responsibility to be educating you, to be reminding you, to be your conscious, you know, I mean, and, and, I, and I do think that this is actually going to be the end of it. Because the amount of people that are turning up in cities around the country and the world, there are even more silent people that are so fed up that you don't even hear about. Right. It's going to be a movement that, you know, it, it, it really is kind of like the last bubbling coming to a head, going to um, um, Wyman's point, you know, and I'm just, I'm patiently waiting. I'm, pa I'm doing my work, but I'm patiently waiting because, you know, more often than not, I'm not thinking about white people, um, you know, because that's a whole nother inflicting of trauma that I don't want to continue and my time and energy is better spent elsewhere. I would like to close with Dr. Naeem Akbar who says um, I am not anti-white I am just pro-black and so therefore my message right now is giving black people the information the remembrance awakening who we are and doing what we do best and that's thrive and that's become amazing as we have always done. Thank you so much, everyone, for being part of this panel. And thank you, listener, for listening and hopefully bringing something away from this. Maybe you're a little bit more tuned in than you were before. And be sure to join us next week when we're going to continue the conversation. And be sure to join us next week when we continue the dialogue with part two of our panel discussion on racism in America. In the meantime, have a great week. <laughs>